So let's talk about a long-term plan. Let's talk about making a long-term plan. So I'm connected to an organization here in Northwest Arkansas. It's a nonprofit. They do lots of uh, exciting things in the community. And I had a chance to participate with them in a long-term strategic planning session. And it was a full day of meeting with an executive coach and some people who had some strategies that could help us think about the ways we do our work. And I actually was looking forward to that. I'm one of those weirdos that I enjoy meetings. I enjoy, you know, uh, being in those settings, especially when I'm not in charge of them. Uh, when I'm not in charge, the inner class clown comes out of me just a little bit, and, uh, and, and I really enjoy those, you know, just a little bit, just a little bit, just to keep things interested, uh, interesting. And so, but I, I enjoy those times, and I enjoyed our planning session that we had, and, and what we were asking ourselves is, what can we do in this community? What dreams can we dream? What, what are some ways that we can make a difference? And we walked away from that planning session with a one-year a three-year and a five-year plan. Now, what's funny about that, that was in the fall of 2019. We had a plan for 2020. We were excited about our one-year plan that was, we were going to start implementing in 2020. And we gathered again this past fall, and we looked at our one-year plan, and it didn't, what we did in 2020 didn't look like anything that we had planned for in the fall of 2019. And I think in a nutshell, that's a little bit of what the pandemic has done to us. It has crippled our imagination. It has, it is, it is handicapped our ability to think about the future in positive ways and to think about redemptive ways to, to go into the future. And, and it's, it's just crippled our imagination so that we're no longer making plans and, and looking forward to things and, and moving projects towards uh, intended goals and completions because every time we try to do something like that, the rug gets pulled out from under us. There's a new research study that says this about coronavirus, or there's a new policy on this, there's a new way to do this. And so we're always playing catch up. And that certainly affected the way that you go about your business. That certainly affected the way that you run your company. That certainly affected the way that you lead in your vocation. It's affected your family. Has anyone tried to plan a trip in the last year? And there's all these different things that, that go into the matrix as we're, as we're thinking through these things. And as you think about your walk with Jesus... I want to remind us that we need to think about our walk with Jesus with a robust imagination. We don't need for our imaginations to be crippled and stifled in terms of, of who we can become in Christ. We need to think with robust imaginations about who we can become in Christ and what God can do in our lives. And so I'm asking you a question today that I'm going to ask you for the next few weeks as we go through the sermon series, what's the best version of your life that you can imagine five years from now? Think with a robust imagination today. What's the best version of your life that you can imagine five years from now? Now, ironically, I'm not the only person in your life to ask you this question. Most of you are going to sit down with someone who they may have a variety of titles, but one of the titles that they're going to have is financial planner. 
And their job is to predict the future. And their job is to assess your present with what the resources that you have and predict your preferred future. And they're going to ask you a question like, well, what do you want to do in five years? What kind of things do you want to accomplish? What do you want to achieve? Do you want to pay down debt? What, where do you want to save money? How do you want to invest your money? How risk averse are you? And they're going to ask you all kinds of questions so that you can imagine your best life in five years from now. And, and, and what I want us to think about is, is, is so often we think about the future in terms of the buttons that we can push and the levers that we can pull. And, and while we're doing that to advance our financial plans or to get a bigger house or to, to you know, plan for having a baby or to, to get our babies out of the house, depending on what stage of life that you're in, while we're planning for all that, our relationship with Jesus is sitting over here in neutral. And we're making all of these plans about all these things that, that we want to do. But as you think about the best version of your life, the, the number one question we need to be asking is, is how is my relationship with Jesus going to be different in five years? How am I going to better reflect Jesus to the world tomorrow, 90 days from now, a year from now, three years from now, five years from now? This should be the number one question of our life as we think about the future. I want to revisit the story of Peter. We talked about him on Easter Sunday, and, and we got Peter to the empty tomb, and John records that encounter where, where Peter and John, they're there, and the stones rolled away, and Jesus is not there. And, and, and John tells us that both of them, they looked, they saw, and they believed. And then he gives us this detail. They still did not understand everything that was going on. They still did not recognize the full implication of this good news that the tomb was empty. Well, it's pretty obvious they didn't understand exactly what was going on because immediately after they discovered the empty tomb, we're told that they, were, they were, went back to a room and they had the doors locked because they were afraid. The same people that crucified Jesus could come and crucify them. And so here's the disciples. They're gathered together. The door's locked. They're afraid. They know the tomb is empty. They know God is up to something, but they're still trying to figure it out. And I want us to revisit this encounter that happens as the resurrected Christ appears. Despite the door being locked, the resurrected Christ appears and begins to commune with them and begins to unpack for them the full implications of his resurrection. And church, I just want you to know that as we think about who we're called to be as a church, we could live in John chapter 20 for a year or more and not fully understand, not fully unpack everything that Jesus is saying to us. But we're going to try this morning, and we're going to look at these three verses of Scripture, these three things that, that Jesus says to the disciples. It's John 20, verse 21. Jesus says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now let's really lean in here and let's hear what the resurrected Christ is saying to us. I want to start with this 
announcement that he gives to them. He says to them, peace. He speaks peace over these disciples who are locked away in fear. You know, we hear the word peace a lot, and it's usually in the context of, I wish there would be peace in the Middle East. I wish there wasn't so much conflict in places like Syria and around the world, and I wish conflict would cease. And we always think about peace as the cessation of conflict. But that is nowhere near the biblical understanding of shalom. As, as God is forming a people, in, in, uh, coming out of Egypt, and he's forming this people, and he's giving them land, he, for, he is forming a people of shalom, of wholeness. And it's not just the cessation of conflict. It is a people who live in the fullness and the wholeness of who God has called them to be. And so Jesus goes to his disciples, and he speaks wholeness over them, peace to them. He's saying to them, I want you to, to be whole and complete, and I want you to live into the vision that God has for your lives. And it doesn't include you locking yourselves away in fear. There's more for your life. There's more for this wholeness that God has for you. So he imparts this shalom to the disciples through the resurrection. And then he, he takes a deep breath and he breathes on them. Oh, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is called the Johannine Pentecost. This is John's sort of telling of, of how the disciples connect with the Holy Spirit. And it's beautiful. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And I want to make sure we know what's going on there. As you read in John 20, he has an encounter with Thomas. And Jesus says, look, look at my arms. You see the nail prints? You see where the nails went in? Hey, look at my side. You see where the, peer, the spear pierced my side and it punctured my lung? And I want us to, to make sure we know what's going on there. Jesus continues to bear the marks of torture after his resurrection. His lung has been pierced by a spear, a spear and yet it is filling with air. Despite his lung having been pierced by a spear, he is able to fill it with air and breathe out the Holy Spirit upon the disciples. It is a lung that, has, that knows what it's like to breathe crucified air, and it is a lung that knows what it's like to breathe out resurrection air. And, and the implication is that I'm asking you to think five years from now, but some of you are living five years ago. Some of you are thinking about pain. Some of you are thinking about loss. Some of you are thinking about the suffering that you have endured. And the good news of the resurrection is that although our lives continue to bear the scars of our past, and they bear the scars of the pain and the suffering that we've been through, because of the resurrection, our lungs can fill with air again, and we can live in the new life of resurrection despite the pain of our past. And so out of that experience of crucifixion, now transformed by the resurrection, Jesus breathes a spirit on the disciples and gives them power. He gives them power for holy living and power for the mission that he is about to give them. And so your pain... Your sin, your suffering, it does not disqualify you 
from what God wants to do in your life tomorrow, 90 days from now, a year from now, three years from now, five years from now. In fact, it puts you in a unique position to be used by God in ways that other people cannot. And so that part of your story, that part of your story is now transformed by the resurrection. So he breathes the Spirit upon them. He gives them the power. And then he says this thing that sometimes I think we struggle with. If you forgive anyone their sins, they're forgiven. If you, if you hold back forgiveness, they're not forgiven. And what is Jesus saying there? It goes back to what he said earlier in John's gospel. He said, I tell you the truth, you will do greater things than I have been doing. Whoa, greater things than what Jesus has been doing? Think about the things that Jesus has been doing. And Jesus says to his followers, you're going to do greater things than that. You think walking on water is cool? You're going to do greater things than that. You think rolling out the Golden Corral buffet for 5,000 people in the middle of the wilderness is great? Uh, you're going to do greater things than that. You're going to feed people that, that, that I haven't even touched or seen in my time here on earth. You're going to do greater things than this. And so in that first moment, as the disciples are first discovering what it means to live in the light of resurrection, Jesus says, you're going to be my agents of forgiveness and reconciliation and healing and hope. I am sending you out through the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can pronounce forgiveness of sins and restoration of broken lives and healing for those who are sick. I'm sending you out. You have a vocation. And friends, as we think about our lives, although the question of the financial planner and the question I'm asking you today, although they are the same question, I'm inviting you to think about them in very different terms. I'm inviting you to think about your vocation to reflect Jesus to the world. As people of the resurrection, we are called, we are his agents, we are called to reflect Jesus to the world. This is our calling. This is why we were put here on earth. This is why God has allowed us to hear this good news and be transformed by the resurrection. Now, as you hear this today, so often when we talk about the good news of Jesus, we, we focus on, on that initial reception of good news. Paul calls it justification in Romans chapter 5. We receive this good news that our sins are forgiven, that the debt against us has been canceled, that the, the legal bill that we have ran up and all of our sin, they have been canceled by the cross, They've been forgiven by the work of Jesus. This is justification. It means it's just as if you never sinned. It's that moment when we come to Jesus and we receive him into our life and we trust him for salvation. It happens in a moment, but the implications of this endure for a lifetime. And that is what Paul goes on to talk about in the book of Romans as our sanctification. Now, our theological ancestor is a guy named John Wesley. You need to read about, read about him. He's, he's a really interesting guy. But he said there are two grand branches of salvation. He said justification and sanctification. And he said it's important to distinguish this work, but never separate them. Never act as if they operate separately. They are connected. This is the, the, the dual work of God in our lives. He justifies us. He makes us just as if we never sinned. And then he fills us with his Holy Spirit 
and sanctifies us. That is, makes us more like Jesus so that our life might reflect Jesus to the world. And church, it's important we get this right. I want to tell you about my friend Todd. I met Todd several years ago. Todd's from the Northeast. And you may know something about the Northeast, places like Boston, Massachusetts, and I think he was around a a suburb of of Boston. And and the Northeast part of our country um, is is becoming increasingly secular. And and what, what I mean by that is there's not a church on every corner. Well, there is a church on every corner, but now they've become restaurants, and they've become museums, and they've become tourist attractions, and So there's no shortage of church structures. There's just not active communities of faith like there are in the good old South, where we live here in Arkansas. And so he grew up in the Northeast, lived there all his life, comes to Northwest Arkansas like many of you. We all get transferred here for one reason or the other. And he got tired of people asking him this question. After they introduced themselves, they say, well, where do you go to church? As if, like, that's the first thing you ask people. How you doing? Married? Got kids? Where do you go to church? Like it just, where do you work? Oh, you work there? Where do you go to church? Where did you go to college? That's cool. Where do you go to church? He just got like, tired of that. He said, man, apparently an Arkansas church is a big deal. And, and so he said, you know what? I, I'm going to go on a journey. I'm going to figure out what this is all about. And we have lots of prominent churches in Northwest Arkansas, so there's plenty to choose from. He said, I'm going to go to church, since everybody's talking about it. It was like a reverse peer pressure thing. Like, I'm going to go to church, and, and I'm going to just figure out what this is all about. And so he goes to one of the most prominent communities of faith we have here in northwest Arkansas. He commits to it. I'm going to be there for three months. I'm going to hear what this is all about. And he was just towards the end of that commitment when I met him. And he's telling me a little bit, a little bit about his story. And you know what I don't say is, where do you go to church? I just let people tell their story. And so he's talking about it, and he's like, yeah, and I found out that everybody goes to church here. I'm like, oh, you don't say. He didn't know I was a pastor at the time. And um, I eventually told him that I was a pastor, and he told me about what he was doing. I said, well, let's, let's go to lunch. Let's talk about that. So we're out at lunch, and I'm talking with him, and he said, man, I'll, I'll just tell you. I've been in this three months now. I just want to say, like, I get it. Like, what is it that you, you get? Like, because if you're talking about church things, like, like we sing hymns like the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and free, you know, like we could never fully understand like the love, like because that's my context and you're telling me you've been in it three months and you're telling me I get it. I'm like, well, what is it that you get? I said, well, I've been going to this church for three months and man, every sermon's the same. Like literally every message is the same. There's there's something about the Bible, and they say something about what happened in Israel and something to, you know, some kind of historical lesson. And then you get to the end of it, and it's always the same. Ask Jesus into your heart. You don't want to go to hell. Ask Jesus into your heart. Forgives you your sins. It's like they have asked me to ask Jesus into my heart like 12 times now. So, like, I get it. You, you, you ask Jesus into your heart, and you go to heaven when you die. I get it. Like, I got it the first time. You didn't have to say it you know, 12 more times. And I'm telling you, friends, that was the most refreshing conversation for me. I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of connected to the church. It sort of dominates all that I 
think about sometimes, and, and all my friends go to church for the most part. And so to be able to hear someone say, like, dude, I get it. It was so refreshing. And, and God was teaching me a lesson through that. In fact, he said this. He said, yeah, I, I get it. And at the end of the day, it just sounds like a big insurance policy. We were saying, really? Yeah, it's just, it's just like a big insurance policy. You go to church, you hear this thing, you accept it, and then you're good, right? That's, that's what I can tell. And we continued to talk, and we continued to unpack that a little bit, but it really made me think. I don't know if you know this or not, but I happen to have a life insurance policy. My financial planner, he wasn't talking about five years from now. He was talking about hopefully 40, 50 years from now. But he said this was going to be a good thing to have. I'm just going to have to take his word for it. But he said this would be a good thing to have. So I have a life insurance policy. And you know what? I don't wake up every morning and think, oh, I'm so glad I have life insurance. It's so good to know that Paul and Luke might be able to go to college with the extent of my life insurance policy. Lauren will have just enough money to get her through until she finds another man. It is good to know. It is good to know that I have life insurance. I don't think about that at all. But when I did buy the policy, the person explained to me all the benefits of what would happen, and they sounded great. Kids can go to college. Your wife can have money. He didn't say that it would be money so that she could find a new man, but I knew. I put two and two together. I know what's going on there. Explained all those benefits, and they sound great. You know the only thing wrong with it? You're dead. That's the only thing wrong with it. The only thing wrong with it is you're dead. And if, 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 if the gospel is anything like a life insurance policy, I don't want any part of it because I want to be a part of a living faith. I want to be a part of something that God is doing to transform the world. I want to be a part of something that begins today and never ends. I want to know that my life has meaning and purpose beyond my death and continues after my death and in this resurrection that Jesus promises for his followers. And this is why we talk about sanctification. This is why we talk about this work of God after we, after we come to Christ, after we receive the forgiveness of our sins. This is why we talk about now what God wants to do to transform us, to make our lives reflect more of Jesus so that more and more people can hear this good news. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the fullest extent. And friends, as we surrender to this work of sanctification, God transforms us and he, he fills us with his Holy Spirit and he sends us out on mission with him. And this is what brings lasting purpose to our lives. And this is a little scary because as you think about our spiritual progression, I don't know about you, the way we read about it in Scripture sometimes or maybe the way it's explained to us is we think of our life as this like perfect upward slope. It even gets steeper as we get older and, and it, there's like no dips and turns and we just continue to progress upward and upward and upward until we're more and more like Jesus. 
And let me just be the first to say, that hasn't been my experience at all. And my experience of sanctification is like, it's like a roller coaster. It's crazy. It's wild. It's all over the place. Because life is crazy and tragedy happens and sometimes I'm sad and, and, and sometimes I'm broken and sometimes I'm frustrated and I think about this, this calling that God has in all of our lives and who he's calling us to be, and I feel so ill-equipped. Lord, I read about who Jesus, what, you want me to be like Jesus? You want me to do the things that Jesus was doing? You want me to love like that? I can't do that. I'm all this. And that is why Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He writes to the church in Philippi. And let's hear again what he says. He says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whether I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners. That's vocation language. That's commissioning language. It's participating with God language. You've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time you heard until now, verse 6. And I am certain that God who began the good work with you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I am confident that God will finish the work. So for those of us who are thinking about progressing towards Christ's likeness and it feels like this and we can't get control of it, what Paul is saying is this work is not ours to do. This is God's work to do in us. And he is confident that what God began in us when we surrendered our life to Christ and when God made it just as if we never sinned and we began following Jesus, that which God began in us, he will bring to completion. He will finish. He will get us to where he wants us to be. It is his work and not ours. Becoming like Jesus is work that God does, not us. And I am incredibly optimistic about who you can become tomorrow, who you can become 90 days from now, who you can become a year from now, what your life will look like three years from now, what you will look like five. I'm incredibly optimistic. But it's not because I think you're such great people, although you are. But it's because I am confident of what God can do in your life. Look at what he has done in the cross and the resurrection, and he can do that in your life as well. He promises that he will, that he will bring to completion that which he has started in you. And so, friends, let's surrender to this work. Let's surrender. What is the best picture of your life for tomorrow? What is the best, best version of your life that you can imagine three years from now? My friend restores cars. He's really good at it. He's really good at it. I am awful at anything mechanical. In fact, I had a minor issue go wrong with my car. Something to do with the transmutation of the 1020 and the flux capacitor. I don't know. And, and I got on YouTube and I found out that, that, that this thing I just described for you could be fixed. It could be easily remedied on YouTube. 
And by the time I got done with the YouTube video and like this old Phillips head screwdriver that I had was, that was literally like the only tool in my garage, I had made it twice as bad. It ended up costing twice as much money to fix what I fixed. Um, and, and I took it to my friend who knows something about cars and, and was able to, to, to remedy this, this issue. He's really good at it. In fact, uh, I, I want to show you uh, a car that, that he had at the time. Um, this, is, this is my car when I worked on it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but this is a car, uh, this is a car a lot of you would like to have. Uh, this is a 1974 Camaro. Yeah, 1974 Camaro. My friend had this car, and uh, he asked me to sell it for him today. So I have a picture of it here. And um, what I'm going to say here, uh, Pastor Diane thinks I'm really good at selling cars, by the way. But what I'm going to say here about this, this vehicle is uh, we're going to call this a, a mechanic special. And so if you like just tinkering around in the garage a little bit, like I think this is the car for you. Um, I, think, I think you would look great in this car. And so, I don't know, does anybody want to give me four or $500 for it? Uh, I can tell you where to get it. I can tell you where, where, I'd like to say I could drive it to your house. I, I don't think we're going to be able to do that today, at least not based on this picture. But my friend went to work, and he began to, to make some progress on this car, and um, here's some of the progress he made. And that paint's good. Uh, having a rear axle is even better. So we have a real rear axle in the picture now. And man, he just began to do what he does, and he began to work on it. And uh, this is what the car looks like today. And uh, I, I think there's a lot of us that would be lining up to drive this 1974 Camaro home. Um, and uh, I'm looking for, forward to the day when I get to ride in this car. But I'm showing you pictures of what my friend can do, and I'm freely admitting to you something that I cannot. It is not within my capacity to take vehicles and make them look anything like that at all. I couldn't fix my car, but I knew someone who could. I knew someone who could take vehicles and restore them to the purpose for which they were created. And when Jesus breathes on the disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and if, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive anyone's sins, they're not forgiven. He is commissioning you to go out and to reflect his life to the world. And you don't have the power to forgive sins, but you know who does. And you don't have the power to restore broken lives, but you know who does. And you don't have the power to heal, but you know who does. Go and reflect Jesus to the world and bring people to the one who can restore their life to the purpose for which it was created. I think about one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption. And in that movie, Andy Dufresne is wrongfully imprisoned for a murder he didn't commit. And he's sent to Shawshank Prison in Massachusetts and there he struggles to adjust to life in prison. And, and the, the unseen forces of the Massachusetts State Correctional System, they are trying to, to, to form and shape him into a person that he does not want to be. And he is resisting this. 
And it is, it is, it is traumatic for him. And he cannot accept the fact that, that he's serving out a life sentence in Shawshank Prison. This is not who he was created to be. And he is befriended by a guy named Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And Red sits down with Andy one day and says, Andy, you've you got to recognize, like, this is the way it is. Like, these are the people that are going to abuse you. This is the, these, this is the thing guards are going to do. This is the sum total of your life. It's never going to be any better than this. And you just have to accept that this is your new life. This is life at Shawshank. This is how life works here inside the walls. And it's a turning point in the movie because Andy Dufresne, he represents this, this, this soul that refuses to accept less than what he was created for. It's a turning point in the movie and he begins to plot his way to freedom one step at a time, one small step at a time, and he looks at Red, and he says, Red, I guess it comes down to a simple decision. we got to get busy living or get busy dying. we got to get busy living or get busy dying. And friend, that is, that is a, a decision. It's a crossroads that, that we have to come to in our, in our walk with Jesus we got to get busy living. The resurrected Christ has breathed the Holy Spirit upon us. He's given us power for living. He's given us power for this vocation. He's given us power to bear witness and reflect Christ to the world. Are we going to get busy doing that through His power, leaning into what He can do through us? Or are we going to continue to stay busy dying, trying to make plans on our own, trying to do things according to our values, trying to, to make our life into the vision that we have for it, when what God is calling us to do is surrender to the vision of our life that he has for it. And so I don't know what you're going to do tomorrow, or I don't know what you're going to do 90 days from now. I don't know what you're going to do a year from now. I don't know what your plans are. I don't know what your five-year plan is. But before you think about anything you're going to do tomorrow or after that. What I want you to say today is, Lord, how can I reflect Jesus to the world? How can I better reflect Jesus to the world? And as we surrender to that, God will form and he will shape us and he will restore us into the image of Christ. Does that sound like a, a, a decision you'd like to make today? Does that sound like a, a new trajectory for your life that you would like to begin today? Can, can we pray together? I want to pray for your sanctification. I, I, I want to pray for you on this journey to reflect more of Jesus to the world. I think it begins with us taking the, 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 our hands off the wheel, taking our hands off the levers of our life that we pull to control it and the buttons that we push, and saying, Jesus, I'm all yours. 
I want this work that you've promised to complete in my life. I want you to have full reign of my life, and I want you to control every aspect of my life, and I want every plan, every ambition, every dream that I have to come under your lordship so that I can reflect Jesus to the world. Could we pray that together? Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Father, I thank you that you are here today. That the resurrected Christ has chosen to meet with us today and and, and promises a life of meaning and purpose as we are connected to your vocation as we are connected to your mission, as we are connected to to this this vision you have of of a redeemed and a renewed world. Lord, I thank you that we can be part of that. And that begins with our sanctification. That begins with us taking our hands off the control of our lives and saying, Lord, it's all yours. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would you give me power to reflect you to the world? Would you do in me what I could never hope to do in myself? Lord, I give you free reign and I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and to lead and guide so that the plans and the purposes of my life are brought into perfect alignment with the vision that you have for me. And Lord, we surrender our lives to you. We thank you for this moment of these moments of worship that we've had. We ask that you go with us today as we leave this place. We give you all the glory, all the praise. You alone are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.